Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're concluding our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, with a message entitled, The Broad Mercy of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 36, verse 1 to 42, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Now, if you've cheated and looked ahead, and you've read all of Genesis 36, you might have wondered how in the world we might say something meaningful about this chapter. You know, it's a chapter that serves as a genealogy of the descendants of Esau. So the chapter is full of names we don't recognize, and in truth, the chapter is full of names that never come up again in the rest of Scripture. And furthermore, what does the chapter really have to do with our own spiritual lives or our own understanding of God? Would it matter a lot if we'd never heard the names in this chapter, names like Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Azer, and Dishan? And yet all those names are there. Now, if you're like me, and I suspect most of my hearers are in this regard, uh, reading through the names presented in this chapter tend to make the eyes glaze over. I mean, you might be forgiven if you simply skipped over chapter 36 and then moved right on to chapter 37, where a a new section in Genesis opens up with the story of Joseph. And yet here it is, Genesis 36. You know, it's surprisingly one of the longest chapters in the book of Genesis. And why? And what's more, let me impress 2 Timothy 3.16 onto my listener. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, if you believe that, well, this has got to be a profitable chapter. So there's a reason why this chapter is included in your Bible. You might learn something about your relationship with God from this chapter, but you're really going to have to dig to get it. Okay, but that's all right. Now, allow me a little spoiler alert. We will learn two important lessons from Genesis 36. And the first lesson, well, that will be the lesson of what should become of us should we reject the grace of God. So important here. The second lesson will also be surprising. It will be this. God and Jesus has found a way to break the curse that keeps nations from the grace of God. So stick with me. There are vital lessons to be learned. But before we go there, let's dive right in. Genesis 36 verse 1 says, These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Now, the phrase, these are the generations, well, that's a phrase we see quite often in Genesis. Genesis 2.4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 6, verse 9 says, these are the generations of Noah. 10, verse 1 says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. 11.27, these are the generations of Terah, who, by the way, is the father of Abraham. And 25, verse 12 says, these are the generations of Ishmael. And then 25.19 these are the generations of Isaac. So I hope you see that those words are a signal marking God's unique new dealings with a group of people and furthering God's eternal purposes. So whenever we read, these are the generations, well, we should perk up and we should say, oh, this now is a new section in the book, and God is declaring how he's going to bring salvation into the world. Now, I'm not going to read all of Genesis 36, but if we did, and if we read it carefully, we would notice that the chapter is divided into two halves, even though the two halves are of unequal length. The first half is verses 1 to 8, and the second goes from verse 9 all the way to 42. 
The first half is a one-generation genealogy of Esau, and it represents his life while he was living in Canaan. And that's very important. The second half actually represents the information from the first half, but it moves the genealogical record of Esau, now not in Canaan, but in Seir, the land he conquers. The second section can be divided into five major subsections, and these subsections focus on the early historical development of Edom as a nation. Now, I'm not going to go into detail, as I've said, although it's tempting to do so, but I want you to notice something that's actually surprising. Bruce Waltke, in his excellent commentary on Genesis, points out that Moses put the list together in such a way as to show that Esau had 12 grandsons making 12 tribes. So for Waltke, the 12 tribes of Esau or of Edom and their conquest of the Horite territory, well, that's a parallel account to the 12 tribes of Israel and their conquest of Canaan. And so even as Israel has its unique story from God, so also Edom has its unique story. That's what Moses wants us to see here. Now, before I move on, and it may seem that I'm going to get way off point right now, but I want to point out a verse that has resulted in some controversy. It's found near the end of our chapter. It's in verse 31. That passage says, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. That is, long before Israel had a king, the Edomites had developed as a nation far more quickly than Israel, and they had had numerous kings. So why is that a controversial verse? Well, as has been said, if Moses wrote the book of Genesis, how could we talk about a time before any king reigned in Israel, given that at the time of Moses, there had been no king in Israel? And so at least for liberal scholars, this is proof positive that the Old Testament is a book that was constantly being edited. The argument goes like this, that sometime after the time of David, Editors went through the book of Genesis and they made changes. They corrected the language. They brought things up to date. So at least so the argument goes, they may have done this multiple times in history. Now, if that's true, well, we'd be hard-pressed to say that the Bible was given through the mouth of the prophets. Instead, it would look like the Bible was given through the mouths of countless editors and correctors of the text. So I hope you can see that would present us with a problem then the Bible is not the word of the prophets who spoke for God. Instead, it's the work of editing committees in some back room somewhere, frequently changing the text. And that would mean that we don't actually know what happened in real history. We only know what the editors wanted us to think. Now, is that true? And if not, still, how can Moses say this all happened before Israel had a king? But a little reflection would tell us that Moses would have written exactly that. Look forward in the writings of Moses to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, 14 to 15. It says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. That's to say, look, Moses himself made provisions for a king to be chosen in the future. 
and then look forward in the same chapter to verses 18 and 19. There Moses writes, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So I hope you see that Moses anticipated the day when Israel would have a king. And so it's no surprise to us then that when he writes Genesis, that he can speak of a day when Israel had no king, given that he knew by revelation that that day would arrive. And so it's not surprising to me to read Moses say, this was before Israel had a king. Uh, We don't have to invent theories about, you know, non-existent editors who later changed the text. And if you allow me to digress even further, it is so important when we read the Bible to resist the vain theories of liberal theologians who would make the Bible into a heavily redacted and edited book. All the archaeological finds of biblical manuscripts tell us that we can rely on the text that's before us. In the case of Isaiah, for instance, we find that Isaiah was not edited. We have every reason for believing that the Bible is exactly as it appears to be. The Bible is a divine book given to us by the prophets and by the apostles and not a book given by the editors and the theories of liberal theologians. Well, furthermore, the Bible presents us with truths before they actually happen. Listen to Isaiah 44 verse 7. God is speaking and he says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. In other words, the God of the Bible says, look, I'm the God who will tell you of what is to come before it actually comes. And that's exactly what we have here in the passage before us. Moses is telling us that not only has he made provision for a king, and that the king who is to come must make a copy of the law and keep it with him. But furthermore, it's easy for him to say, as the nation of Edom is developing, that Israel at that point in time is not reigned by a king, but that the king to come will actually rule over all the land of Edom. Every once in a while, an opportunity arises that's just hard to pass up. In fact, that's what I want to share with you today. For the next number of weeks, a group dedicated to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, have provided a match pledge gift of $125,000. So what does that mean? It means that you have the opportunity to make such an incredible difference in this ministry moving forward. So for every dollar so graciously given right now, another dollar will be given to the ministry up to $125,000. That means if you call us today with a gift of $100, it becomes $200. Or a gift of $1,000, it becomes $2,000, multiplying the opportunity to sustain and grow this Bible teaching and engagement ministry. So please join us in maximizing this generous pledge by calling us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donating securely online at backtothebible.ca. Your gift now doubled will support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt. (music) 
Let's get back to the extensive genealogy of Edom in Genesis 36. You know, up till now, we've noticed that the chapter is in two halves and that the first half is the beginning of Esau's family while he's in Canaan. So let's read verses two and three. It says, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Ohalabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaoth. Now, we've already learned about this debacle earlier in our study of Isaac's dysfunctional family. Esau, rather than taking a wife who would share in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, began to marry the local women, women who were deeply involved in idolatry and in sexualized fertility cults. See, our Bible tells us that this decision caused grief for Isaac and Rebekah. Those were Esau's parents. What we now have in Genesis 32 is a genealogy that came from that decision. Now, here we see the contrast of two brothers. Esau is cut off from the covenant line of blessing by marrying Canaanite wives. Later on, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, Moses would write, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. See, Isaac and Rebekah, Esau's mom and dad, knew that and tried to convince their son otherwise. But Esau was determined to go his own way. You know, years ago, I did a funeral for a man who had taken his own life, and it was a life that was lived in despair in which he left behind a wife and very young children. Now, in the process of doing the funeral, I I met the dead man's father. He had as a youth turned from God, and he lived his own life. And he had no idea of the despair that would follow from his youthful decision. Well, neither did Esau. Genesis 36 is that story. Now, the second part of Genesis 36, that is from verse 9 and going forward, begins with the words, These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. And so our genealogy moves us from Esau's disastrous intermarriage with the people of the land to his desertion of the promised land, the land of Canaan, for the land of the Horites, a land that he will conquer and claim as his own. And so we see that Esau has cut himself off from the covenant line of blessing, first by the wives he chose, and then second by the promised land which he deserted. Now here we might wonder, I mean, what else could he have done? I mean, Did the blessing not go to his brother? Was it not stolen from him? Yeah, well, it was, but what should he have done? Now, it is true that Esau and Jacob could not have lived together. They had too many possessions, and yet Esau could have gone to the north of Canaan. There was plenty of room for him there. If he had stayed there, it is true that Jacob would have ruled over him, but it might have been a benevolent reign. And it might have been that his children could have lived under the covenant blessings of his brother. Instead, from this genealogy, we see the contrast between Israel and Edom. See, Esau's children are born in Canaan and they leave. In contrast, Jacob's children are born in exile and they, by faith, possess the land of promise. Don't you see, it's all where you put your hope. Will it be in the promised land? the land that God gives to his children, or will it be in other places, the land that your soul desires? You see, the same story is being replayed hundreds of times today. One person will, for the sake of Christ, abandon this world and cling to the promises of God. And another person might even be born into a believing home and then abandon that for the sake of what the world offers. And Esau's genealogy represents that second scenario. 
Indeed, with that as a background, we can trace how this works out in the Bible. So I'm reading Numbers 24, verses 17 and 18, and it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. And then, it adds, Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also. That's the long-term story of Edom. It wouldn't be a story of blessing. It would eventually end in disaster. Now, by the time of King David, he would, he would conquer the Edomites. And we also know from history that even though the Edomites continued to exist in, you know, in a very small way at the time of Christ, indeed, they're even mentioned by the early church fathers, we also know that a short time after that, they simply ceased to exist as a nation. I mean, you can go and visit the nation of Jordan today and see the historic territory of Edom, but you'll find no Edomites there. They simply ceased to exist as a people. They were dispossessed. And so Edom's genealogy eventually leads into a cul-de-sac. And what do we learn? Well, there is no future for the one who abandons his God. Proverbs 14 verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I might end this section by simply making our point, abandon the covenant. God's going to abandon you. But that's not the only lesson we learn. Let's go back to the earlier days. You know, Moses, if you remember, gave Israel a command, and it's found in Deuteronomy 23, verse 7. It says, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. And then much later, all the way to the time of Amos the prophet. You know, in Amos' days, great enemies had encircled Israel, but But Amos sees beyond the present crisis of his day to the fulfillment of God's purposes at the end of time. And then speaking by the Spirit of God, well, listen to what Amos will say that will happen in the end of days. I'm reading Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. It says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, in other words, Amos sees that after the kingdom of David falls, that God will raise up a great king to sit on David's throne, and when this king does that, He'll not just rebuild the fallen tent of Israel, but he'll also possess the kingdom of Edom. And this great king will not only make Israel his nation, he will also include Edom as his own. It's it's an amazing promise. But how does it happen? I mean, if Edom has gone out of existence, how will Jesus, upon his return, make Edom his own? Well, Acts chapter 15 is a very important passage in our Bible. It's a chapter fraught with controversy. Paul has just come back from his first missionary journey, and he's seen Gentiles come to Christ, and he's baptized them, even though they'd not been circumcised according to the law of Moses. Well, the church meets in Jerusalem to find out what God has to say about all of that. At one point in their discussion, James gets up to speak. He quotes from the prophecy of Amos, the one concerning Edom but he changes it slightly. So let me read to you what James says in Acts 15, verses 15 to 18. It says, And with this the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Now, if you're listening closely, you can see that James changes just one word in the prophecy of Amos. 
Amos said that the Messiah would possess the remnant of Edom, and then James, quoting that, says that he will possess the remnant of mankind. Well, how can James just say that? Well, the answer requires a bit of an understanding of the Hebrew language. Written Hebrew only has consonants. It actually doesn't have vowels. And for that reason, the actual spelling of Edom and the spelling of Adam is exactly the same. Now, hang in with me, and I'm going to show you something remarkable. In Hebrew, Adam might refer to the actual person, or it might refer to the entire human race. You know, when the ancient Hebrews wanted to speak about humanity, they simply said Adam. That's because they understood the human race to be the sons and daughters of Adam. Now back to James and his explanation of the Gentile mission. You know, James knows that Amos promises that Christ will save some of the remnant of Edom, but for him, that's simply a representative of saving all the remnant of Adam. And that's the hope of Genesis 25 to 36. These chapters are a story of people who make all the wrong choices. And by all indications, they should have no part at all in the kingdom of the Messiah. Esau should be excluded. Unlike Jacob, he has no covenant with God. He's already made his own bed. All that's left now, as they say, just lie in it. But the story of Jesus, the story that the entire book of Genesis points forward to, is the coming of the seed of the woman, the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. And it turns out that the promise of Abraham is so much larger than the history of Israel. It's not just the story of God sending his son to save Israel, but it's the story of God sending his son to save the remnant of Edom. And as James reminds us, the remnant of mankind. Hey, take hope, child of God. Have you blown everything? God has made amazing promises to dysfunctional people. You know, John, sometimes I wonder, but I'd have to say there's something remarkable about the genealogies in the sense that here we have such order. They're so specific. It says so much about the Word of God, doesn't it? Yeah, it, the Word of God is given in a historical context with real people, and God is interested in those real people. I mean, it does, I know, cloud our eyes once in a while to read these things, but maybe that's just a function of our culture. I mean, Ben, I remember uh, giving a, uh, a New Testament to a Sikh man. He opened it up to Matthew, and uh, he started to read the genealogy. He was fascinated with it and read every word with interest. I mean, that's the kind of an interest that the Bible gives in real people. Thanks so much, Sean. And thanks for joining us for this series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada, and I want to share with you an important message. In the past couple of weeks, a group of individuals have come together in a unique way to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Together, they've raised pledges of $125,000 toward a ministry match campaign. That simply means for every dollar our supporters and listeners donate over the next few weeks, a matching dollar will be given by this group up to $125,000. We're so grateful for such generosity. 
those who have made this match pledge, and to those who will respond so we might maximize its impact through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Could I ask you to take the opportunity today so that the entire pledge of $125,000 might be completely realized, totaling $250,000. Your gift of 25, 50, 100 or more will make this possible. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.